Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO podcast brought to you by WeCare365. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and we hope there will be lots of insights for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. What a privilege it's been to interview Professor Amy Evanson from Harvard Business School. I first heard of Amy when I read a New York Times article which was titled, What Google Learned in Its Quest to Build the Perfect Team. And that was the first time I saw that psychological safety was described and the business benefits of it. In short, it is the number one predictor of the most innovative and successful teams. It's no surprise that Amy was awarded the number one Thinkers 50 management thought leader globally. And she's been in the top 50 since 2011. It certainly is an idea whose time has come. Just some of the things we discussed include why she transitioned from being an engineer to organizational psychology, what the leadership team can do to promote a culture of learning, why a caring and supportive team is paramount to innovation and success, why she encourages thought leaders to think like scientists in a volatile and uncertain world. How she and her husband, George Daly, who just happens to be the Dean of Harvard Medical School, lead like scientists in managing their very busy household. What she does for self-care and the leadership lessons we can take away from Ted Lasso and his cookie making. And of course, why she's written her most recent book, The Right Kind of Wrong, which is due out in early September in all good bookshops and so much more. It was an absolute pleasure, and I'm sure you'll hear so many nuggets from Amy. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to welcome Amy Benson to The Caring CEO. Welcome, Amy. I'm glad to be here. Amy, what does care in the workplace mean to you? Care means passion about why we're together to work on the things that we have to do. So it's about the purpose. It's about the purpose of the work we do. And then also about the people and and also about the future. You talk very much about having a learning organization and the role that senior leaders can play in that. What do they do to really promote that? Oh, they they do so much, but I think it starts with how they show up and are they are they genuinely excited about the work that lies ahead, you know, about whom we serve and are they authentic and transparent about the challenges that lie ahead? Because I I really think leadership is about helping people navigate the the very real hurdles in, in our, in our path. And so when, when leaders are both excited about it, but honest about it, and they understand they have that tremendous empathy about what it's going to take and yet why we should be excited about doing it anyway. That, to me, is the kind of leadership that starts to generate the learning organization. 
And it's also a tolerance of mistakes, isn't it? And you talk oh. about different types of mistakes. So can you just talk through the different mistakes that occur and what are the good ones? <laughs> well, let me let me give you a, a, an alternate term, which is failure. So failure includes mistakes and mistakes often lead to failure, but they're not synonymous terms. So a mistake happens when, in fact, there is solid knowledge about what we need to do. And for whatever reason, it wasn't used. It wasn't put to good use. We never are happy about that, but that doesn't mean blame and shame. That just means it's a wonderful learning opportunity. But failure covers a broader territory. And failures, I divide them into basic, complex, and intelligent. Basic failures are those that are the result of a mistake. The knowledge existed. We didn't use it. We got a failure, sometimes big, sometimes small. Our job is to learn fast from that. Complex failures are the kinds where multiple factors line up and produce something, you know, a supply chain breakdown, for example, a very complex, very consequential failure. You can also have complex failures that, you know, just are small, that you leave the house in the morning, you forgot your phone and, you know, you're late for a meeting and all those little things sort of line up and create a failure. We don't celebrate either of those kinds of failures, right? Again, we want to learn from them and we want to make it psychologically safe for people to learn from them. But there's another kind and I call them intelligent failures. And they are the undesired results of experiments. They are what happens when we are trying to innovate or trying to solve a problem. And we've got a pretty good idea of what we think might work and we try it and alas, we were wrong. So those are the kinds of failures, nothing to do with mistakes because in fact, you were generating a very smart experiment, but it didn't work out. Those are the kinds of failures we not only want to truly celebrate, we in fact want more of them, not fewer of them because that's where progress comes from. Yep. So it's willing to make those uh, intelligent guesses. It's almost like a hypothesis and see if they work. It is a hypothesis. Absolutely. It's like we want everyone in a way to be a little more comfortable thinking like a scientist. You know, I'm I'm not 100% sure what's going to work, but I think this will work. And it, and it has to be in pursuit of a goal that matters, right? You're not just randomly experimenting with things that you don't see a way they're going to push us toward a valued goal of some kind. It has to be thoughtful. You know, you, you really um, got a hypothesis and it can't be any bigger than necessary to produce the result, which is learning and, and possibly progress. My uh, wife is a professor in cancer epidemiology, and I saw your post about how, how we need to lead like scientists. And you've talked about some of the elements there. Are there, any, are there any other components that you didn't mention about leading like a scientist? Yeah. You know, one of the contrasts I like to make, if I say, if you've got to lead like a scientist, it's instead of sort of setting targets and having all the answers, it's about creating the space for people to try things out and helping people make sense of the results. Because as a leader, you may have more experience, you may have more sort of ability to try to sort out, especially un unexpected or undesired results. But it's a very different mindset than 
I have the answers. Here are the plans. Your job is to execute on those plans. And people like your wife do this day in and day out. They do this for a living. They're comfortable with it. They're comfortable hypothesizing and collecting data and making sense of data and helping others do the same. But too many managers are stuck in the old sort of industrial era model that assumes that plans are going to be absolutely executable as first conceived and don't easily account for for changes that happen in the environment. The other thing that I like about scientists, and I've had the opportunity to um, observe my wife in action, is the capacity to work with a very diverse range of people, not just ethnically or gender, but also very much, you know, cognitive diversity, you know, having people that are on the spectrum, but they they do extraordinary work, but wouldn't be considered in traditional organisations because they don't necessarily have the interpersonal skills. Do you think that could should apply in our workplaces now, our, our business workplaces, having different cognitive diversity? I do. I think cognitive diversity is is analogous to or an extension of expertise diversity. We already know that in certain fields, say engineering fields and science fields, um, you're more more likely to have um, people who are you know really smart analytically, not always great interpersonally. Sometimes they are, as I suspect your wife is, my husband is, but it's um, in in functional diversity or expertise diversity. There's already often a corresponding cognitive diversity that comes along with it, and and I have data that shows that expertise diversity um, is a predictor of innovation success, mm-hmm. but only when psychological safety is high. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to utilize that d- diversity of inputs and perspectives and 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 backgrounds without an environment of psychological safety where people feel very free to be candid, you know, very feel free to share their thinking and and um, question and challenge each other's thinking as well. You started off as an engineer a long while back. How did you evolve from that to now being the number one global <laughs> think leader, thought leader? How, what were some of the steps along the way? Well, many, many steps, but uh, engineers, some, somebody who studies engineering like me is at heart a problem solver. I mean, you, I have a, a strong desire to get things done, right, to sort of um, make, make sense of, of complexity and, and, and try to solve problems and achieve results. And what I discovered in my early career was that yeah, I could do that, but I was so much more fascinated by the the problems that involved people, right? The, the the problem solving that was how do we get this team to work together, and and what are what are some of the things that that managers and leaders can do to sort of make things work better in the organization? And like it or not, those were the problems that started attracting me. But at the time, I didn't have any any background, any real expertise in psychology or management or anything like that. So I ended up having to go back to school and and get a PhD in organizational behavior and master's in psychology. Well, funnily enough, my wife started off as an electrical engineer and she worked in the, the biotech area for 
probably about, I think it was about 12 years and worked all over the world with a, a couple of companies there. But she came to her realisation uh, in her early 30s and went to Oxford and did her uh, her PhD in, in um, epidemiology. And, uh, yeah, so there's some overlaps there. <laughs> You're... Husband uh, George Maley is the dean of Harvard Medical School. So you obviously both have a very very busy lives. How do you think like scientists to run your household? <laughs> well, I'm not sure that we consistently do. Just just to be fully honest with you, um, but one one thing that one thing we do i would say is that we are not surprised when things don't unfold exactly as as hoped um i i would say and i th- i think good scientific labs do this as well we um divide by expertise and so i've done a lot more of the management um he's done a lot more of the uh, cooking he's a, just an exquisite cook he loves to grocery shop and he loves to cook um and he's 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 very scientific about it right so he's very very detail oriented and experimental and and um um when our children were young now they're now they're young adults but when they were young i did a lot of the management of the various schedules and helpers that that we would need and he over time he, he's pretty good at fixing things that break so he does those kinds of things and um i think sometimes as time goes on especially since we don't have the kids at home anymore he's doing more of the of the heavy lifting than i am fair fair enough you've got a new book coming out uh, can you just see that it's called the right kind of wrong and as i understand it it's coming out in september so not too far away why did you think that book, that content was right for the times. Yeah, so right kind of wrong, which is really a, a, another way of saying intelligent failure. Mm. And the this, the topic of failure seems to me one that doesn't go away, right? It, it, it has remained quite popular, but also quite fraught. And I think part of the challenge is is that people don't do a good job of distinguishing among the types of failures. So I thought we 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 almost have two camps. We have the camp that says fail fast, fail, fail often, you know, the sort of um innovators, um, tech company idea, move fast, break things, etc. And then we have the camp that says, hold on just a minute. I live in the real world. We can't fail here. We got to get it right. And they don't see eye to eye clearly. And the truth is neither one of them, neither, neither side is making the right distinctions so that we in fact can practice the science of failing well. So I wrote the book to help people understand the good kind of failure and the, and the not so good kind and to share best practices for preventing the preventable failures. Mm. You, know, you, you know, you teach your children not to run into the street. Um, to catch a ball that just went out there in traffic, right? That's because if they did that and something, God forbid, were to happen, they're hit by a car, that would not be a good kind of failure. And that is preventable. And similarly, you know, if a child is completely unwilling or a manager or CEO to try things that might not work, that company or that child will not be a lifelong learner will not be relevant for the long haul. So I wanted to help people make very clear distinctions 
between the kind of failure we should have more of and celebrate, kinds of failures we should work hard to prevent, and then dig kind of deeply into what are the competencies that your organization needs uh, to do this well? Right? What's the sort of self-awareness that people, I think particularly people in leadership roles, need to have to understand the impact they're having to create and help others create a real learning environment? Mm-hmm. And what is the situation awareness you need to know whether this is too high risk a situation to experiment or exactly the right kind of situation where you should be experimenting and and pushing the envelope out further? And then finally, what kinds of um, sort of systems thinking and system under- understanding do we need, again, to be able to have um innovation without preventable failures. We've had the most extraordinary last four years, you know, with uh, the pandemic, but also the last six months as well, there's been a lot of, a lot, lot of happening with artificial intelligence and chat GPT. What do really good leadership teams do to stay on top of that? Oh, you know, I think first of all, you know, you you declare once and for all, we'll never be, you know, fully up to speed on everything, right? The world is going to keep throwing us curveballs. Mm-hmm. The world is going to keep changing. We're going to, we're going to keep sort of encountering new challenges, new technologies. And the best way to stay up to speed is, a, is to, to team, is to is to um, divide and conquer, is to sort of make sure we really recognize and, and listen to the various experts in our domain, be honest about the things we know and the things we don't know, raise your hand and ask for help um, when when you need it. But that got, we've got to make sure those kinds of behaviors are truly seen as okay. Mm. How does that translate then to the weekly meeting of the leadership team? I think a weekly meeting of the leadership team should be uh, primarily focused on mutual help in problem solving, right? And and I think the the least effective weekly leadership team meetings are those that are just report ins, and they're essentially the underlying messages all is well here, mm-hmm. because we, uh, we people are instinctively motivated to look good in the eyes of others. Uh, to report bad news, it's like we 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 learn that behavior quite early. We don't we don't want to look bad. We don't want to look weak. We interpret the idea that we might have mistakes or failures as as um, or problems, you know, as evidence of weakness. When in fact, it's really evidence of honesty and alertness. Right? If you're mm-hmm. if you're not aware of problems happening in your domain, your function, your business unit you probably aren't really on top of what's happening. Mm. So I I think the best leadership team meetings are the ones where they use that precious time to counsel and help each other um, with ideas for uh, the most important problems that have come up this week. It's almost as if we should assume that most of the things are going as they should. Don't waste our time reporting those, but let's roll up our sleeves and help each other because the chances are good that each of us have some experiences or ideas that will help the others. Thank you. Uh, I read that the term psychological safety was actually coined by a psychologist, Carl Rogers, in the 1950s. <laughs> in the 1950s. 
Why do you think it's taken so long to be now known as a critical element of teams? I think there's two big reasons for that. And and one is Carl Rogers was in the um, clinical psychology field. And so his work was on therapeutic relationships between the clinician, the psychologist, and the patient. Mm. And he believed and and um, had evidence to show that unless you have a psychologically safe context in that relationship, your your patient is less likely to learn and grow and 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 heal and and do the work they need to do because they have to feel safe to be honest. They have to feel safe to to um, to take risks. That's not the same context that we're talking about in when we talk about companies. So. It, it often will take a while for a concept that is is um, important in one domain or field of expertise to find its way over to another. So that I think that's one reason. But then why has the general notion, not just the term, but the general notion of what it takes to be successful in, and which which really means to learn and innovate extremely well in a changing world, why has it taken us so long to recognize the importance of the climate for making that happen in companies? And I can only say I think it's it's because we didn't fully take seriously the the volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world in which we operate until you know a couple of decades ago. It, it, you know we, we we kind of knew there was uncertainty and complexity out there, but we acted as if we could just have plans and schedules and targets and manage accordingly. Mm. It's mm. kind of broken up. It's especially broken up during the uh, global pandemic caused by COVID-19. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to say is I think today we finally get it. Like we get that we're operating without a crystal ball. Mm. And then when you, when you suddenly take that to heart, mm. you realize we have got to have an environment of candor. We've mm. got to have an environment where people are willing and able to share their ideas, to ask for help, to admit mistakes, to engage mm. in experimentation, because that's the only way we're going to succeed in this changing world. So its relevance is just greater than it ever was before. And I think people also fundamentally get us. And one of the things I do in my keynotes and workshops is ask people to reflect on their best team. You know, it could have been this team, previous team, when they worked at McDonald's, when they were in a sporting team. And what was it that made it really special? And, uh, you know, use a tool called Menti where people can vote live and and have about 10 different criteria. And that's things like, uh, you know, we had a compelling vision, we had complementary strengths and uh, a number of others. But in 95% of the cases, the top three are we had each other's back, we enjoyed working together, and we cared about each other. And, wow. <laughs> and uh, so it, it's a it's a, quite a compelling way for people to realise yeah. and experience psychological safety. You know, they've been in a really supportive environment. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I first read about the concept uh, in, and I was very excited to read this, in the New York Times article, Google's Quest for the Perfect Team. That's where I first read about yourself as well. Was that a real landmark in terms of the discussion of psychological safety in the workplace? 
it was a real landmark, absolutely. So in the in the academic literature, in my field of organizational behavior, the psychological safety and and a measure of psychological safety had achieved, uh, you know, a, a, a fair amount of recognition. Lots of citations, lots of people using the variable in the research literature and the research articles that only are really primarily read by academics and a few thoughtful practitioners. And so the work I had done, the first paper on, on this topic of psychological safety in teams was published in 1999. You know, it had been a successful paper and a reasonably successful academic career, but not until the New York Times article publicizing the Google study, Project Aristotle, um, did the idea take off more broadly, right? So it was a real turning point mm. and got a lot of people talking about this in organizations around the world who had not been talking about it before. Mm. So I couldn't be more grateful about that article. Yes, and I did as well. And that led to me actually reaching out to you and we collaborated on, on measuring the psychological safety of the Australian workplace through a charity called Are You OK? that I'm, I was a founding board director of. And that showed, this was in 2018, I think it was, it showed that only 33% of Australians felt it was safe to take a risk at work, which is, which is a very, very low number. Um, I've also asked that question more recently and, and done surveys with my database and LinkedIn, and it's came to be much higher. It's more like 50%. Wow. And and I'm and I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the pandemic when we just didn't have the answers, did we? We had to had to try, we had to learn and, and uh, do things. Do you think that it's like a leading question that that's really contributed to why psychological safety has become on the CEO's agenda? I do. I think the the pandemic taught us first of all that we. We realized we really did have to be able to experiment and solve problems in an unfamiliar situation. And I, I think many companies, many organizations, including my own at, at, at Harvard University, were in a funny way stunned at our ability to sort of turn on a dime and and mm. you know, like send everyone home, figure out how to teach classes virtually and and all of that. And then we, you know, we suddenly realized we 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 were capable of doing more than we thought in terms of innovating and problem solving. And we realized that part of that was that people weren't sort of pausing to say, oh, gee, I wonder if I'll get in trouble for that. I mean, people were just free to take those risks and to know, and they knew everybody knew, everybody you know, would forgive them for things that didn't work because we'd never been there before. We were in brand new territory. Mm. And so automatically created more wiggle room for experimentation, which is kind of analogous to psychological mm. safety. Mm. And also I think we felt fragile, we felt vulnerable, which and, and but but it was discussable. Like mm. we, we talked to each other about it. Like, well, gosh, how's this going to work? And I'm nervous and I don't know how I'm going to teach effectively uh in this way, for instance. So so there was more um almost intimacy in our conversations because we were willing to admit that we didn't know all the answers because we hadn't been here before. So I, I think that both allowed the experimentation, gave us a sense that, you know, when we try things that don't work out perfectly, it's not really all that bad. We're still okay. 
And, and so maybe that did help um, in a lot of cases. Thanks for being part of the Care First movement. You may be interested in some free resources that we've prepared at wecare365.com.au. The first resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist, which contains all the elements that you'll need to prepare and launch a mentally healthy workplace program and how to build momentum for up to a year after that launch. The second resource is how to support a teammate or a loved one in distress poster. This provides guidance about how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the are you okay conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help they need. These resources can be found at wecare365.com.au. There's been some really interesting things play out, hasn't there, with regards to whether people can work from home or work from the office or a combination of the two. And a lot seem to be landing on, you know, a hybrid sort of uh, solution. But there's a big trend playing out in Australia. One of our largest companies, the Commonwealth Bank, they provided an edict that you had to be in the office half the time and uh, Mm. work from home half the time. But it was such a big issue that the union that represents employees in the banking sector have taken them to court uh, to say that it is fine to work from home. You know, it hasn't affected our productivity uh, by working at home. How do leaders navigate something like that? Could, Could you think of a better way that they could work out a solution that worked for all. Yes. So this <laughs> is a very interesting topic. And w- one of the things that I've been observing in this in this discussion is this is essentially two, I think, unhelpful and unnecessary polarizing features of these discussions, right? So one is they have been sort of turned into, you know, bosses versus employees or organizations versus employees. The truth is that's people and people. And it's it's not as stark as that, right? It isn't as if there's sort of the man and then everybody else and one side wants one thing and the other side wants something else. It's just not nearly that stark. And yet a lot of the dialogue has been carried out that way. The other way it's been sort of polarizing is that it's, it's been about... Um, you know, either, you know, remote work is good or remote work is bad. And of course, that's overly simplistic too. You know, remote work is complicated and different and under some conditions is perfectly adequate and under other conditions is limiting. Mm. And so the, the real the, the real conversation we should be having is a problem-solving or designing conversation, you know, how do we design work that works Mm. for the future? And what kinds of tasks are absolutely great to do by yourself, you know, in your kitchen, wherever, at home, and what kinds of tasks just absolutely fall short? Mm. And let's also be a little bit more open and a little bit more compassionate, but the people whose job requires them to be there in person. And those are, you know, people who are, are um, taking care of patients, for example, or or in in uh, you know retail environments, grocery stores, and the like, and and not leave them out of you know of 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 the conversation as 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 we do. So I believe we can and will, or at least we can, design 
effective ways to work that both um, allow people to um, spend more time working remotely, but also come together in the ways that recharge and 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 re-energize us and allow us to do the kind of collaborative, um, generative work that is really best done together in person. I um, interviewed previously the director of the future work from Novartis in based in uh, Switzerland. And I understand you've done some work with Novartis as well. But uh, where he has landed and recommends is that it shouldn't be an edict. It shouldn't be employees dictating things. It should be the team that decides how we work together to deliver the work. Does that align with uh, what you think is in the right direction? It does. I mean, it's it's. Um, I don't want to over over uh, simplify the challenge or downplay the challenge of a team deciding. Um, is, but but I do think that the team in it's roughly right, right? And, and and what that looks like will be different for different teams and different kinds of work. Mm-hmm. But of course, it doesn't make sense to say. Oh, everybody should go in, you know, three days a week. If we're not going to go in the same three days a week, right? That would be almost, you know, the worst. The worst thing that can happen is you you make your drive and you go into work and uh, you get there and nobody's there and you're working remotely <laughs> with all your, you know, your colleagues on a screen, right? That's silly. Um, but but one of the things, you know, I, I had the experience as we started in in 21 and 22 to come back together for various things, work, you know conferences, you know, as, as, as people started to come back together, and I, I I suspect many of our listeners had this too, where you had person after person saying, wow, it's so great to be together, right? Or it was so great if you were at a little conference or a meeting, you know, to hear the laughter or to read the body language again. And, you know, so we intuitively appreciate and understand the special energy of human to human, um presence um we also understand the 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 joy of not having a five day a week commute right so but these are design problems that can be best um solved if we are honest with each other about both the advantages for example of remote work and the disadvantages of remote work mm-hmm. the potential cost to um relationships and culture if we're never together it does there's certainly very real evidence that 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 erodes some of our feelings of of connection and caring and compassion when we never um, are together in person um so all of these things need to be part of the conversation we need to be on the same side of the table which is let's design structures and processes and and policies that work for all and not pit people against each other or oversimplify the costs and benefits. I'm taking a guess here, but um, I think you may be a Ted Lesso fan. And Mm. uh, I saw a post on LinkedIn about his cookies. What what prompted you to write that post? Well, it is it is such a delightful show, um, and um, he he sort of exudes a kind of obviously he's he's all about caring, right? He's all about sort of caring about um, the team 
um, caring about them as individuals, caring about them as a collective. Uh, he has a kind of, um, you know, uh, um, disarming honesty uh, as he approaches, as he talks to his boss, as he talks to them. And um, there are many, many elements of Ted Lasso's leadership style that are worthy of emulation, right? So I think it's it's both the, the combination of good practice and humor uh, makes it fun to talk about him and the show. So why was it specifically about the cookies? What was the uh, the lesson learned from the cookies? First of all, he what he did have a, a fearlessness, right? But, but Ted Lasso had a fearlessness. But the importance of that was in the beginning of the show, the boss was really the kind of prototypical television or movie boss who is lying, mean, sort of has her own agenda that she is not being honest with, you know, her her employee or the team about. Um, and and instead of just kind of saying, shielding yourself from the boss and not not interacting with the boss he takes that fearless approach of of managing up but not to fool or trick the boss but to kind of win her over turn convert her into a caring compassionate learning oriented boss cookie by cookie <laughs> the other thing that's happened and i'm sure contributed to hugely by covid and also ai is a real global mental health crisis in the workplace. You know, last year, I think it was Microsoft came out and said that uh, 62% of employees were vulnerable to burnout and 66% of managers were vulnerable to burnout. We've also had uh, the the, um, World Health Organization estimate the lost productivity cost at $1 trillion globally to, to mental health. How can psychological safety play a role in improving and addressing that? You know, I, I love to cite research done by Michaela Carrissy at the Harvard School of Public Health um, that shows a negative relationship between psychological safety and burnout among healthcare providers in, in um, hospital settings. So that when when uh, psychological safety was higher, burnout tended to be lower. Mm. And in more recent data that we've collected together, what we have um, found is that burnout is protect. I mean, psychological safety is protective against burnout. Right? So we finally have data where it's it's longitudinal. So we can look at pre-existing, like pre-pandemic psychological safety and show that those with higher pre-pandemic psychological safety, again, in healthcare delivery settings where burnout is just a hot topic, um, those with the higher pre-existing psychological safety in their units, in their work groups, ha- were less um, less likely to suffer extreme burnout after the fact. So, and and how do I interpret that? And and you know, how do we explain that? It's, it's psychological safety fundamentally allows you to be more yourself. It allows you to ask for help when you need it. It allows you to be open um, when you're feeling um, down or need help or. Are vulnerable, so it's it's okay to be vulnerable. We're all vulnerable, right? What's really hard for us is when we can't acknowledge it, right? When, when we can't be open about it. Mm. There's a certain um, aspect of being all in it together mm. that psychological safety enables. Mm. That is protective against the worst of the 
you know, the burnout challenge. And I think this is true for other mental health challenges as well. Mm. We are much more able to sort of endure hard things when we feel we're, we are um, cared about and connected to our colleagues in a meaningful way. Mm. Yeah, Gallup, um, you know, have what they call their Q12, which measures engagement discretionary effort. But one of those questions, and they found it to be the most predictive, is I strongly agree with this statement. My supervisor or someone at work seems to care about me as a person. Wow. They have shown, and because it's been, I think, um, been answered about 16 million times in 135 countries, they have shown that the more people that strongly agree with that, the higher the productivity, profit, um, longevity of with the company and also customer service levels. So it is wonderful, isn't it, to see those sort of things really being highlighted because it's got to be the future of work is creating a place where we do feel cared for and supported. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's. I think sometimes people mistake that for some kind of Pollyanna notion, oh, I could do whatever I want, or I wouldn't have to work hard. You know, it's like I'm, I'd be comfortable, but it's actually not what it's saying, is it? It's what it's saying is so long as I genuinely believe that my supervisors, and I'd add it's really great too when you believe your colleagues care, care mm-hmm. about me as a person, mm-hmm. then your data are saying I'm more willing to exert effort, right? Mm-hmm. I am more engaged, I'm more willing to exert discretionary effort. It's such a profound and, as you say, robust finding. Mm. And, you know, that would seem to be something that we can and should directly target. Right? We, we need to develop caring managers, caring CEOs, yes, but all the way down. People yeah. whose first job is to learn how to care mm. so that you can sort of engage people in the in the growth and development and contributions that they are there to to experience you might um, notice on the screen behind me uh, we care manager about leading mentally healthy and safe teams and this really came about through trying to create a learning experience that showed them how to do it, you know, what they actually need to do to create the right sort of environment where people feel supported, but also being able to identify those that are vulnerable, you know, those that are what I call in the red zone, you know, that are feeling stressed or anxious. Yes, yes. And uh, it is it is really, uh, you know, when we talk about the red zone, um, it was based on my survey of over 4,000 people. And it's the I care framework, which is how we identify someone who's struggling, how we show compassion and have the are you okay conversation, how we help them to access experts, how we incorporate that work is good for recovery, revitalizing work, and then the is for exercise. And, ah. you know, that's, there's simple things to do, but they make a profound difference if people mm-hmm. uh, do feel safe to admit that they're not coping. The sooner that happens, the faster the turnaround, because often the boss can make the changes that help facilitate that. 
Yeah, I mean, the worst thing that people can do is keep hiding. You know, if they're if they're hiding their distress, if they're hiding their um, their struggle, it takes longer, and sometimes even you know becomes um, a problem that it gets too difficult uh, to recover from. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's a 50-minute e-learning program followed by 12 nudge videos where, you know, elements of psychological safety are shared and it's encouraged. They, they receive one email per week for 12 weeks and it encourages them to put it into action because uh, it's my experience that most managers want to be a good boss, uh, but they don't necessarily realise that there's little things that create that sense of connection, having each other's back, um, you know, supporting each other make a, a really, really dramatic, dramatic difference. It's so true. And, and you know, a lot of people internalize the idea that the manager, they're supposed to have the answers, they're supposed to be tough, they're supposed to be, you know, um, you know, really um, like not a, not caring almost, mm -hmm. almost as if, well, that's not what a manager uh, does. And they've just internalized the wrong messages, you know, maybe from Hollywood, maybe from their own managers or parents. But when, you know, getting that message out that you're trying so hard to do and that I try to do as well, that fundamentally good management is caring. Right? Good mm -hmm. management is, um, it's about um, helping people get things done, yes, but also helping develop people to be all that they can be. Mm. What are some good ideas you've seen about how managers can, can promote that sense of connection and belonging, but in the hybrid world where some are physically in the office, some are at home. Have you heard of any good ways that that can be done? Well, I, I think there's, I don't have um, a sort of one size fits all answer, but the fundamental stance, I think, is it starts with humility. It's sort of a, a recognition that we're in new ground, we're in new territory. And so there's a hum humility about um, how this is going to work and, and, and also humility to know that I need you. Right. If this project or this work unit is going to be a success, um, you are, as a manager, very dependent on your employees. Right. More than more than um, most people are comfortable with. So being open and honest about that, that dependence and that interdependence, I think, is a great start, because what that's saying is um, I have some ideas and I know you do as well. And I need to hear them to sort of like, how are we going to make this new situation work as best as it can? Um, and, and secondly, is approaching this with curiosity. Again, what what do you what do you think might work? What do I think might work? Well, let's try it and see what happens. Let's be honest with each other about um about what we experience as as a result. And I think it boils down to doing everything we can to have the most um, productive, learning-oriented, forward-facing conversations we have, and knowing there'll be, you know, there'll be mishaps and struggles along the way. It's really interesting you use that word humility because one of the reasons we started the caring CEO and we define a caring CEO as someone who champions a culture of care and a culture of high performance goes for both. And <laughs> so one of, one of the reasons we've done that is to show that this stuff isn't theory. There are highly, highly successful people out there that are living this way of leadership. And uh, 
But if I had to summarise one quality across all those people, it would be humility. It really would, you know, just very, very little ego and very open to admitting they're vulnerable, asking for help, even talking about their own struggles. You know, we, I interviewed um, a CEO here in Australia called Mike Schneider. He's the CEO of Bunnings, which is a 55,000-employee hardware group. Wow. And, and he talked about you know, they, they tried to launch in the UK and Ireland. It didn't work out for a whole bunch of reasons, but, um, you know, he said it was a huge setback in his career and he had to get a, a mindset coach to help get him back on track. And when leaders admit that, it just it normalises the conversation, doesn't it? It makes it possible for others to be honest. For others to to speak up as well, I really think if you want if you want candor from your team, you've got to be willing to be honest, mm. um, and that includes honest about the setbacks and honest about the struggles. And it's there's probably nothing more important uh, than that. What do you do for self care, Amy? How do you keep yourself <laughs> in good shape? Well, I you know I've I've um, I'm a almost lifelong runner. I started in my twenties and I do, I do love to run. I don't run fast anymore, but I, I, I just love to get out and, you know, be outside and just um, feeling that, you know, wind and speed. And it's, it's, it's lovely to be out there um, running. Um, I'm also an avid sailor. Uh, that's not something I can do in the winter, but I do enjoy doing it in, in the summer when, when the stars align. Very good. Relationships at work are obviously very important. And another, you know, of the Gallup questions is, and it was a, it's, it's been a bit controversial, I have a best friend at work. And, again, that's been shown as very predictive of someone right. who's highly engaged. How can we promote better friendships in the workplace? I love that. I actually have been a, I've known about that item for, for years, and I think it's it's such a beautiful Item And it doesn't mean my best friend works where I work, right? It means that when I go to work, there's someone Mm -hmm. I can go to. And I, I have to tell you, I interpret those data as just, it's a proxy measure for psychological safety. Mm -hmm. If you can answer yes to, or high score on, I have a best friend at work. What you're really saying is there's someone I can confide in, which is just a little bit more of I can be myself, I have that psychological safety and at least one meaningful relationship in my in in my workplace. So I think that is why it's so predictive. I often get um, approached, you know, with people who are experiencing depression or anxiety at work because I've, I've got real lived experience in that area. And they say, oh, don't, you know, should I tell my boss? And, and I said, well, just start off by telling someone you trust what's going on. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, you know, and you, the question you asked, which I didn't really answer before of how do you promote or how do you nurture good relationships? To me, I think sometimes when people hear that, they think I have to tell you my whole life story or bear my soul. And that isn't actually, you know, I think the essence of a good relationship is one where fundamentally know three simple things. One, what is it that you are hoping to accomplish either in the small or in the large right what what do you what are you trying to do mm-hmm. and then what do you bring well you know i'm a good listener i'm good at maths whatever you know and then and then 
what are you up against? Which, of course, is the most vulnerable of the three questions, which is, you know, what what, what hurdles do you see in your path? And yet it's not, it's not deeply personal or intimate. It's just, if I know those three things about you, what you're trying and hoping to get done, what you think you bring that's, you know, that's, that's valuable and, and what you're worried about, what you're up against, that's enough, right? Then, and you know that about me, we have a relationship and it's a meaningful relationship. And I'm so happy to see you at, at, you know, on on any given uh, work day, feel connected to you because of that. So I think if more people just had the insight or opportunity to share those three things, um, we'd have stronger relationships at work. You may be familiar with um, Bob Chapman. He's the author of Everybody Matters and the chairman and CEO, Barry Weimiller, a very successful uh, manufacturing group, manufacturing services. And, you know, it's been his reflection that you show you care by listening with empathy. They've even put together their own course in their own organisation to improve that listening with empathy. And uh, he attributes that to... a huge part to the success of the business. Yes. I, I wrote about them in the Fearless Organization. It's a beautiful case study uh, for creating psychologically safe environment that really nurtures the learning and growth of its employees and has had tremendous success as a result. I can't believe how quickly the time has gone, Amy. It's almost up. But uh, I always finish by asking the guests, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? <laughs> um, stress less. <laughs> just, it's so, I, I can't tell you how much sort of angst and anxiety I experienced um, with that thought of, of, of just, you know, anxiety about whether I'd be successful or even be okay, you know, even just sort of be gainfully employed. And I worried so very much. It took away a lot of the joy I could have been experiencing, not all of it, mind you, but a lot of it. And I think if I could have just said, focus on learning, focus on the opportunities to learn, not to succeed today, but the opportunities to learn, it would have more or less arrived where I did, but happier. Yeah, I think that's just a wonderful message to uh, finish up. Amy, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it hugely and uh, appreciate it very much. It's a delight to spend this time with you after all these years. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's been great. And, you know, just, uh, yeah, such an interesting discussion. I just loved it. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. And we hope you've learned some practical tips that you can try with your team. If you've enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on your favourite podcast platform. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing more details about our simple, scalable WeCare365 mental health training programs, please visit us at wecare365.com.au. We strive to make these programs easily accessible, practical and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a caring CEO you would like to see interviewed, please email us at support at wecare365.com.au. Thanks once again for joining us.